God's grace and God's mercy extends to the nations. His love and his spirit beckons to all people in every standing of their lives. All cultural backgrounds, all socioeconomic standings from all settings on the planet. Despite geopolitics, God is calling his people to himself. Join me as I read our scripture reading for today, found in Luke chapter 13, verses 10 through 17. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called out over. He called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, everyone. It's it's a pleasure to be here today to worship with you all. I'm Dr. Richard. Uh, my wife's name is Hayoung. Um, she's sitting in the back over there. And we have one son, Ian, who is a junior in college. Um, we've been friends with Jim and Karen for a number of years. My ministry is training international church leaders. And so we've interacted with Jim and Karen on a number of occasions. And I remember about a year and a half ago, we came and visited New York City. And so we had uh, stopped by and talked to Jim and Karen. They gave us a little tour of Astoria told us about all the, all the different people who live here and the great potential for ministry here and about this church as well. So I'm, I'm so thankful to be able to see you all in person and to uh, just be a part of this great ministry here. Um, and what a, what a joy it is to be able to worship together. Uh, this morning, um, as we look into God's Word, let's just um, spend one more moment in prayer, if we could pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for giving us this opportunity to come before you as your people, Lord, as you, has, you have called us and provided for that call with the blood of your son, Jesus, Lord. You wipe us clean and give us the purity that we need to, even to come into your presence, Lord. We thank you for your word, and as we hear it, may you open our ears, open our hearts, Lord, to hear the message that you have for us, dear God. Lord, we thank you again, and we give you all glory, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. This month marks the one-year anniversary in which 22-year-old Masa Amini was arrested in Iran 
supposedly for not wearing her headscarf properly. Now, at the time when she was arrested, the authorities told her family that she would be taken down to the police station and she would be uh, having to attend what they called a briefing class and then released probably about one hour later. But she never made it to that class because in the van on the way, she was beaten and tortured so severely that by the time she got to the police station, she fell into a coma and was taken to the hospital. Three days later, she was dead. Now, Massa's death was not just one more casualty of a corrupt and oppressive regime. It was the spark that set the whole country on fire. From every part of the country, from every element of society, from educated elite and working class, university students, young and old, everyone, everywhere, were gathering and protesting against the government. For decades, the Iranian people had lived under the bondage of an oppressive government, and now they were fighting for their freedom. Women were gathering in the streets to burn their headscarves, rejoicing in just a fleeting moment of freedom. Business owners closed their shops in support of the protests. Oil refinery workers were on strike in protests. And university students organized protests all over the country, confronting security forces and getting arrested. And as millions of Iranians gathered and protested and demanded freedom from the, for their country, they had one rallying cry. Three words that really focused all of their demands. Women, life, and freedom. Freedom is such a precious thing. It's something that people are willing to fight for, something people are willing to die for. For you and I, you know, we may not be under an oppressive regime, but I'm sure every one of us in this room wants to have more freedom. Maybe some of you want to have more freedom from your parents. Maybe some of you want to have more freedom from your children. Maybe some of you want to have more freedom from your boss. Or some of you want to have more freedom in your schedule to do the things you want to do. Or freedom in your finances to buy the things you want to buy. Or maybe there's more internal needs for freedom that are not so obvious, the freedom from the pressure from your friends' opinions, the freedom from social media feeds, the freedom from your anxieties about the future, the freedom from your fears and your emotional ups and downs that constantly burden you, even the freedom from negative habits that you can never seem to break. And for all of those individual types of bondages in our lives, the good news is, is that Jesus has come to set you free. In Luke 13, we meet a woman who has been living under multiple levels of bondage for 18 long years. And finally, Jesus has set her free from all of it. So if we can understand the powerful and compassionate way that Jesus has set this woman free, we can also understand how he sets us free as well. And so in order to understand the freedom that Jesus gives us, I want to look at uh, the different types of bondage described in Luke 13. And as we go through the passage, I'll divide it into three main points. First, the woman's bondage. Second, the people's bondage. And then finally, Jesus' bondage. So let's look at our first point now, the woman's bondage. Now here in Luke 13, Jesus is teaching in the synagogue, as was his regular habit on the Sabbath day. But in the middle of the sermon, he sees this woman with a bent back. But if you look carefully at the details of the text, then you'll see that it's not just that she's injured or disabled, she is actually in multiple levels of bondage. Verse 11 describes her as having a disabling spirit. So it's clear that this is a spiritual bondage. Now her friends and her family, they couldn't see the spiritual forces at work, but they were keeping her bound. And the verse goes on to describe her, bent, her back as being bent over. 
And so this woman was not able to straighten herself. She had a physical bondage as well, a physical disability in her back. And then it describes the problem as having lasted 18 long years. So this was a long-term bondage. And with each of these details and specific types of bondage that the woman was living under, Jesus responds one by one, giving her specific types of freedom. Verse 12, Jesus, it doesn't say that she just, he just healed the woman, but it specifically says, woman, you are freed from your disability. And this is why I'm describing the woman's uh, disability as a bondage, um, that it's not just an illness or disease that needs to be healed, but it's a multifaceted bondage that, from which she needs to be freed. Now, Jesus, by the authority of his word, he commands the disabling spirit to leave and giving her spiritual freedom from her spiritual bondage. And then he lays his hand on her back, using the physical touch to restore her back to the proper position, giving her physical freedom from her physical bondage. And then the text says, immediately she was made straight. Now, in response to her long-term bondage, Jesus gives her an immediate freedom. Now, this is the one that's most impressive to me because I am also a preacher, and I know that when, once I start a sermon, I don't want to stop. I don't want any interruptions. I, don't, I would just want to keep going until the end. And I know that if I were in Jesus' position and I saw this woman, honestly, I would have waited to the end of the sermon to heal her. But I'm not Jesus, and I'm glad that I'm not. But Jesus, he couldn't wait one more second. After 18 years of her suffering, Immediately, he gives her immediate freedom. Now, I've always been impressed with the intricacy and the detail with which Jesus is able to analyze and respond to every level of this woman's multifaceted bondage, treating her spiritual, physical, and long-term bondage with a spiritual, physical, and immediate freedom. Now, for myself, the most difficult and long-lasting type of bondage and multifaceted bondage that I, I faced in my life was the bondage to depression. Now, my parents immigrated from South Korea to the United States a couple years before I was born, and I grew up in the suburbs of Philadelphia. And so I lived in a nice house in a nice neighborhood, and I didn't really have any physical problems to worry about. But through my preteen and teenage years, I suffered with this feeling of depression that weighed on my heart. For about five years, this feeling of depression was so heavy in my heart. I remember as, as a teenager at that time, imagining if I could just have a magical pair of scissors to cut out my heart and remove it because it was so painful. Now, finally, after trying many different ways to get rid of my depression, I decided to try God. And so at the time, I was attending my high school youth group at our church, and the youth group was planning to go on a two-week trip to go from Philadelphia to Minnesota to visit a Native American Indian reservation to sponsor a vacation Bible school, a Bible camp for the Native American kids. And so I signed up to go on that trip. And I remember praying at that time, praying to God, God, I don't know why I'm going on this trip, but whatever you want to do in my heart, I'll just take it. And God used that trip to take away the depression from my heart and fill me with peace and fill me with joy. It was the first time I'd ever tried to serve God or the first time I ever tried to serve someone else. And so God, Jesus was able to break the spiritual bondage of depression in my life, and he set me free. But as the years went on, I realized that my bondage to depression was multifaceted. Now, I do believe the spiritual bondage was broken, and I didn't feel the same enslavement to depression that I had before, but every once in a while, it would still come back. 
And so what I realized is that it was not only a spiritual bondage, but it was also a social bondage. Now, I grew up in a family, um, a traditional Korean family, where my parents were very distant emotionally. They didn't express their emotions. And so um, they didn't talk about problems. They didn't tell, they express their love. And so if I had any uh, emotional problems, I wasn't able to, to share it with them. And I didn't know any better, but that social support my, was lacking from my family. And so it didn't help me to deal with my depression. And so every once in a while, that depression would still come back. Uh, but I realized that it drastically reduced once I got married. Well, after I got married, finally, with my wife, I could share all of my emotional burdens with her. I could express all of my emotions to her and, and have su social support for my depression. And so I, it was, it, Jesus was able to set me free from the social bondage of depression. But not only was my depression a spiritual and a social bondage, but I realized later it was also a physiological bondage. Now, as I got older, I noticed these patterns in my life that depression would usually come back more in the wintertime, when it was dark, when there was less sunlight hours. But, and so I realized there was a physiological thing going on in my body that it was affected by the lack of sunlight that caused me to be more depressed. And I noticed it more uh, readily when, when my wife and I finally we moved to California. We had sunlight all the time, every day. And so all of a sudden, my depression was completely gone. Now, I share this story with you because I'm sure every one of us, in one form or another, are in bondage to something. And sometimes your bondage is also multifaceted, keeping you enslaved in multiple reinforcing levels. And sometimes you may respond to one level, not realizing that there are other levels that you need to respond to. And sometimes we're responding to the wrong category of our bondage. Maybe some of you are also experiencing bondage under depression. Or maybe it's an unending stress. Or maybe it's a crippling fear. Now, we as, especially as Christians, our first reaction may be a spiritual response. We think we have to have more faith. We think we have to pray more. And of course, that is true. We always have to have more faith. We always have to pray more. But sometimes there are more levels to, to our bondage. And maybe in addition to the spiritual freedom, so, uh, spiritual bondage, some of you are experiencing um, you, a social bondage where maybe you also grew up in an emotionally distant family. Or maybe you also have a physiological uh, imbalances in your body that you need a physiological freedom. And so there are different levels that we have to respond to. But praise God that Jesus sees all the different levels of bondage in your life. And he can set you free from every single one of them. Jesus set this woman free from her spiritual bondage her physical bondage, her long-term bondage. Jesus set me free from my spiritual depression, from my social depression, and my physiological, physiological depression. And whatever it is that's keeping you bound, Jesus can set you free as well. Now, in order to fully understand the types of bondage in our life and the power that Jesus has to set us free, we have to look again at the passage and understand not only the woman's bondage, but we have to understand the people's bondage and how Jesus set the people free as well. Immediately, as soon as Jesus set this woman free, uh, free from her spiritual, physical, and long-term bondage, it says in her, see, shows her reaction to verse 13 that she glorified God. And while it would have made sense for everyone in that synagogue to glorify God and rejoice with her, there was one per person in particular who was not at all happy. 
It says in verse 14 that the synagogue ruler was indignant. But even though it says that he was indignant because Jesus healed on the Sabbath, the thing is that the thing that really got him angry was not that Jesus healed the woman. The thing that really got him angry was that Jesus set the woman free. It upset him because, in fact, he was the one who was keeping her bound in the first place. And we know this because we can see that he's keeping all the members of the synagogue bound. Now look carefully at the details of the text to see this. Even though the synagogue ruler was upset at Jesus, he didn't address his complaint to Jesus. He responded to the people. And why is that? Because it's not Jesus who is under his control. It's the people who are under his control. And he doesn't want them to be set free as well. And so he's trying to use his own religious authority, his own spiritual abuse, his own misguided teaching of the Bible in order to keep the people under his control. What we see in the text is that even though Jesus has set this woman free from her spiritual bondage and the physical and long-term bondage, there's still, she and all the synagogue members are still under the social bondage of the synagogue ruler himself. And specifically, he's using a type of spiritual abuse to keep the people under control. Now, where do we see that in the text? There are two things that he does to reveal his spiritual abuse to the people. The first is his misguided teaching of the Bible. Now, here he, he says um, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. But is this really biblically correct? According to the Bible, there are, in fact, three purposes of the Sabbath day. The first is that we're supposed to worship on the Sabbath, just as we're doing here today. And that's the, one of the reasons why we do come to church every Lord's Day, and that it's not optional. It's actually in the Ten Commandments, just like we're not supposed to, we, we shouldn't murder, we shouldn't commit adultery, also we shouldn't neglect the Lord's Day and remember the Lord's Day to worship faithfully to God. And the second purpose of the Sabbath is to rest. The Hebrew word for Sabbath literally means to cease for, to, or to rest from labor. And so while the synagogue ruler was correct and that we're not supposed to work on the Sabbath day, the question is, is healing a type of work? And that's where he got it wrong because there's actually a third purpose of the Sabbath, doing acts of mercy. Now, while he should have been well, of course, we should be worshiping and resting on, on the Lord's day, and that means coming to church. In order to have a worship service like this, there's a lot of people who are doing a lot of work. All the pastors and church staff and volunteers are working very hard to allow the, all, of, all of us to be able to worship on the Lord's day. And so that is not exactly restful activity, but it is an act of mercy. And so police officers, hospital workers, government, essential government workers, everyone who, who has to work even on the Lord's Day to keep this society running, these are all acts of mercy and completely appropriate on the Sabbath. And so also healing is an act of mercy. And so while the synagogue ruler in Luke 13, he had the two purposes of the Sabbath correct, he was missing the third. And not only was he missing it, he intentionally abused it in order to keep the people under his control. And we know this, that he's using actually the spiritual abuse to control the people because of his next statement. He says, come on those days and be healed. Now, let's just pause for a moment and appreciate just how messed up this statement really is. Now, I know of people who in their old age have a bent back. And of course, they can still walk. But it's difficult to walk. 
They can only walk short distances, and even that with taking, uh, br taking frequent breaks. They can't walk very far. And so imagine how difficult it would have been for this woman to walk to the synagogue on that Lord's Day. And to tell her, come back on another day. That, not only is that being insensitive, that's just plain cruel. He's not, only, not only is he not rejoicing for this work of healing that happened to her, but he's judging her for it. Now, it's clear in these details that the synagogue ruler is using the Bible in order to maintain his control over the people. And he doesn't care at all for the people in his synagogue. This is spiritual abuse. Now, this type of spiritual abuse, it was practiced by the synagogue ruler. It was practiced by the Pharisees and the scribes, the other religious leaders at, at the time of Jesus. But here we are 2,000 years later, and this type of spiritual abuse is still going on among Christians today. And one of the most famous examples of spiritual abuse used to keep people under control, under the bondage, was Mark Driscoll and his megachurch movement called Mars Hill. Now, Driscoll had risen to spectacular prominence for the success of his Mars Hill churches, and all until he resigned from that ministry under accusations of severe spiritual abuse in 2014. Now, this was almost a decade ago, so I don't want to go into the details. But let me just quote for you an article that I found from, written around that time that describes the main problem of Driscoll's abuse. Jeff Robeson, in the article, he states, Mars Hill had developed an abusive, coercive ministry culture under Driscoll's leadership. Pastor Mark had engaged in verbal assault, slander, domineering actions and speech, arrogance, and quick-tempered behavior, all while changing the church's structure to ensure his power and authority were unchallenged. Now, the article goes on to explain the phenomenon of spiritual abuse in general. It says, spiritual abuse is about the misuse of power, about using a position of spiritual authority to control, pressure, or mistreat someone in your care. It's often about hypocrisy, about maintaining a public persona that differs from your private self. Now, I know this can be a potentially difficult and controversial topic, but, and of course, any church in any situation is going to have people who disagree, disagree on church leadership, even on theological issues. Uh, that's not the same thing as spiritual abuse. Because every church, even good churches, are, still have disagreements and are able to talk about them freely without punishing people for disagreeing. That's completely different from the spiritual abuse that deliberately mishandles scripture and abuses one's spiritual authority in order to control people and keep them under bondage. Now, this example of Mars Hill, it makes the point that this type of spiritual abuse that Jesus was dealing with, and the same type of spiritual abuse that even Christians today are continuing to deal with, uh, happens today and all over the world. It's not just the religious leaders from 2,000 years ago, but it's religious leaders today who are still engaging in this type of spiritual abuse. Now, maybe there are some of you, even in this room today, who know exactly what this feels like, that you yourself have experienced this, maybe in a, in a previous church, maybe from other church, uh, maybe in your other ex religious experiences, maybe you've been in a place where religious traditions and the, the spiritual authority were never questioned, where religion was used as a weapon in order to keep people under control. Maybe it wasn't your church leader, or maybe it was even your family member, or maybe your close friends who are exercising this spiritual abuse over you. 
And if that was your experience, I just wanted to say, on behalf of the church, I'm so sorry that you had to go through that. That the church is supposed to be a place that sets people free. The Bible is supposed to be the thing, the power that gives us freedom, not the power that keeps us in bondage. And so if you've experienced this type of bondage under spiritual abuse from religious leaders or family members or even your closest friends, I want you to know that Jesus also dealt with this type of spiritual abuse. And he did not back down. He stood up to those who were being oppressed, those who were being in, under bondage. And he did not back down until he ultimately set them free. And he does the same to set you free as well. But our freedom, it does come at a cost. And so in order to understand that cost, let's go to our third point today. Now, after the woman's bondage and the people's bondage, let's look now at Jesus' bondage. Jesus responded to the religious leader's attempt at maintaining his bondage over the people by completely tearing them apart. Immediately, he calls the religious leaders hypocrites. This is the term that Jesus often used for the religious leaders because they had an appearance of obedience and following the law, but in reality, they were only concerned about their own power and their own position. But calling them hypocrites, he, Jesus was just warming up. This was just the beginning. And Jesus goes off on this detailed analogy to drive the point home. He says, Does not each one of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? Now, notice all the repetition of the terms of freedom and bondage in the passage. He doesn't say, water your ox and donkey. He says, untie your ox and donkey. He doesn't say Satan has possessed the woman or tormented the woman. He says Satan has bound the woman for 18 years. And he doesn't say that, that she should be healed from her disability, but that she should be loosed from her bond. Now, all this language of freedom and bondage makes it clear that his main point is, in the passage is freedom. But in order to really feel the sting of Jesus' insult to the religious leaders, we have to carefully analyze the analogy that he's using and specifically understand that there are three elements to this analogy, of this comparison of the spiritual leaders versus the woman. The first of these three elements of the analogy, the first element is the thing that is being bound. So in this first case, it's the ox or the donkey. The second element is the act of setting the thing free. In the first case, it's untying it. And the third element is the thing that bound it in the first place. And so Jesus says, you, meaning the synagogue ruler and all the religious leaders there, they're the ones who bound their ox and their donkey. But now look how Jesus compares these three elements to the woman that he just set free. The first element is the thing that is bound. He calls her a daughter of Abraham. He doesn't just say her. He doesn't just say this woman. He says a daughter of Abraham. He lifts her up and gives her honor, essentially giving her the value that she should have in comparison to the low value that they give her. Essentially, they care more about their own barnyard animals than they do for this daughter of Abraham. And then the second element is the act of setting this thing free. In verse 16, to be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day. And then listen to the third element, the thing that did the binding in the first place. In the first half of the analogy, it was the religious leader. 
In the second half of the analogy, it is Satan himself. Basically what Jesus is saying, the religious leaders, by trying to keep this woman in bondage, they are doing the work of Satan. They are basically, you guys, you're just like Satan yourself. Now what an insult. Jesus completely tears these guys apart. He's breaking down their position and their authority so that he could set the people free. And in order to do that, he utterly puts these guys to shame. Finally, the people were set free. It says, all the people rejoiced at the glorious things that were done by him. Now, why are they rejoicing now here at the very end of the passage when Jesus had healed the woman at the beginning of the passage? It's because in the beginning when the woman was healed, only she was set free. But now finally at the end, all the people are set free. But what is the cost of that freedom? It, the people have been set free, and the cost of the freedom was shame. Verse 17, it says, all his adversaries were put to shame. Shame was the cost that needed to be paid in order for the people to be set free. The oppressors had to be put to shame in order for the people to be set free. But I want you to think about it for a minute. How much shame? How much shame, even just for this little group of people inside the synagogue from this small group of synagogue rulers, how, if you could measure it, if you could hold it in your hands, how much shame was required in order to set these people free? Now compare that to the amount of shame required to set the entire world free. How much shame would, the, how much shame would it be required to set all the people free in all the world. Now, think about how, many, how much shame would it require to set all the, the employees free from their oppressive bosses? How much shame would it be required to set children free from their oppressive parents? How much shame would it be required to set wives free from their oppressive husbands? How much shame would it be required to set all the people free from their oppressive friends, from oppressive church leaders, from oppressive family members? And how much shame would we have to bear to set the people free that we are oppressing? Think about how much shame would we have to bear in order to set people free that the people that we manipulate, that we pressure, that we judge and we gossip about, and we, the people that we look down upon. But don't stop there. Keep going. How much shame would we have to bear in order to set free our own selves from our own oppression? So many times we think that the oppressors, they're on the outside. They're the, the, the other people who are keeping us bound. But so many times we are our own slave masters, oppressing ourselves. How much shame would we have to bear to set us free from our own fears, free from our own anxieties, free from our own concerns of, of the opinions of other people and the need to prove ourselves to others, free from our own addictive behaviors and destructive habits? Now, if you were to measure all of that shame, if you can imagine even how much shame that would be to set the whole world free, who could possibly bear that much shame? Well, there is one person who can bear that much shame. And I hope by now you know who that is. It's Jesus Christ himself. Here in Luke 13, we see Jesus putting all his adversaries to shame. But at the end of the book of Luke, the tables were turned, and it was the adversaries who were putting Jesus to shame. More than just name-calling, more than just embarrassing, they spit upon him, they beat him, 
They whipped him. They mocked him. They stripped him naked and nailed him to the cross for the entire world to see his shame. Only Jesus, only the, this Jesus who is worthy of all honor could take so much shame, enough, to sh- enough shame to set the whole world free. And he did it all for you. Now Jesus submitted himself to the bondage and shame of the cross in order to set you free. In the beginning, I mentioned the death of the 22-year-old woman named Massa Amini. Just like in Luke 13, how the people were enslaved by the synagogue ruler, so also this young woman in Iran was killed by religious oppressors who were trying to maintain their control over the people. But she was not the last casualty in this fight for freedom. In the massive protests that followed in the next several months, at least 522 others, were protesters were killed by security forces and military. They all gave their lives for the cause of freedom. But in the end, as precious as each one of those lives was, they did not achieve their goal of freedom. After several months, the government were able to regain control and end the protests and continue their bondage of the people. But Jesus gave his life and submitted himself to the bondage and shame of the cross in order to once and for all set these people free. His sacrifice sets the people free in Iran, sets people free all over the world. And out of his great love, his bondage and his shame on the cross sets you free as well. Do you feel the weight of that cost that he paid for you, for your freedom? He sees you and he loves you. He knows every area of your life, every facet of your bondage, the things you live with every day, and he sets you free. Are you ready to hand it over to him, to trust him, that the price that he paid on the cross is more than enough that he would set you free? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for giving us this time to look into your word, and even from 2,000 years ago, how Jesus stood up to set the people free at the cost of his own shame, at the cost of himself becoming bound, becoming arrested, Lord, he gave up his freedom in order to give it to us, Heavenly Father. Lord, you know each one of our hearts. You know all the things that we are dealing with, all the bondage in our lives. Lord, we pray that you would increase our view of the cross. Lord, lift up our eyes to see what Jesus has done, to, done for us, Heavenly Father, to set us free, that we can trust in him, that our, our faith in him is more than enough to give us his freedom. We thank you for all of these things. In Jesus' name, amen.